Welcome to the fifth episode of the third season of Hyper Talks. And I want to start off thanking Beppo Studios. Uh, you are superstars. Thank you so much for letting us record here. I'm your host, Jonathan Kevin. With me is my co-host, Daniel Monson. Hello. And our guest is Mats Levan. Hi. Speaker, research analyst, author, and journalist. And uh, we're going to let you tell us more about yourself in just a minute. Thank you. Today's topic will be about technology and how it will transform our lives and our society in the next few decades. Maybe even far more than most people realize. And before we jump into today's topic, I would like to propose a check-in. Today's check-in question, we have a check-in question. And the ad is a future invention that you're hoping to see or like looking forward to that doesn't exist now. Do you want to start? I can start. Yeah. Um, And I... I don't know why this doesn't exist today. I really want like a keyboard button that just translates all the text to like capital letters or small letters. Like say that you have a text and then you mark it and then you click this button and they all become capital or small. It's mind-blowing that it doesn't exist already, but I'm really looking forward to that. A shortcut. You have it, uh, I mean, in, in software. But you need the shortcut. Yes, exactly. Right. You, you want you want a button. I want a button. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I, I'll continue. And uh, a future mention I really want to see is flying cars. I've been waiting since I was a kid. Well, we already have them. I'm sorry. Uh, I mean, like commercially oh, yeah. available for me to buy one and then fly to work. Okay. And back. That's what I'm. That's what I'm wanting to see, and I want to see it now. Okay. So that's my check-in. Well, let's talk about technology. It's almost here. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing that you're going to have is a car that y- y- will fly you to work and, and back or wherever you want to go, but you won't pilot it because it will be autonomous. Yeah. Because you're not good enough no. flying cars, no. <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't have the makings of a pilot. Uh-huh. No. Oh, you're quite hands-on. And uh, no, I'm, I'm dreaming for teletransportation, that thing that we've never um, been seeing in the reality of seeing all these science fiction movies. Uh, but uh, one invention that uh, this is a little bit borderline because uh, according to me it already exists, but it's so controversial and it's a whole story. I've, uh, I wrote a book about it, and we maybe we can touch upon it. It's a new energy invention. It once in the eighties was called it was called cold fusion, and it's um, a, a, a physical phenomenon which is um, proved but very controversial in the uh, scientific community. And once it was talked about and people decided that it was debunked and fake, uh, no one dares to talk about it. But it's the, the development is still ongoing and it's an energy source which is now called low-energy nuclear reactions, which would actually change, actually change the world and save the world from fossils and nuclear everything. So that's a good invention. Okay, yeah. so we're going to get back to that, <laughs> yeah. definitely. Yeah. Um, and as we said before, you are a speaker. Research analyst, author, and journalist. Did we miss anything? Um, I don't know. Uh, sometimes I call myself futurist as well. Did you Ooh. say that? I don't. No. I don't think it was in there. But I'll, oh. I'll make sure we we add that. You know. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we want we want you to tell us a little bit more about you. Right. So, so my background. Kind background. Of. Let's yeah. start there. Um, I I never knew exactly what I wanted to do at school, but I was good in science, so I. I went to um, the um, technical university and, and got myself a uh, degree in physical engineering. 
And after that, I was not really sure what what to do again. So I, I worked for a while with some friends in a small startup, and then uh, I got off as a travel guide. And I uh, I was always playing music as side kind of uh, work, uh, doing entertainment, playing clarinet and saxophone, and singing. And then I got into journalism because I always wanted to describe things and talk about things and write about things. That was kind of my inner kind of thing I, I, I like to do. So I started freelancing as a journalist and and um, actually started a, a radio. So uh, the studio environment is very fairly familiar to me. I was uh, working for the Swedish radio as a program called Radio Europe, Radio, radio Europa in P3. It was very nice. And... Um, you know, uh, so journalists took off like that, and I I thought that would be this travel journalist going around the world writing stories about. But eventually, you end up understanding that uh, a specialized uh, competence is very good in journalism. So I I brought up the technology part of me uh, with having this degree in uh, physical engineering, of course, and started to work as a science and technology journalist. And I soon found work. I worked at uh, the Swedish uh, major magazine and technology called New Technique for like 15 years uh, eventually and uh, a few years ago I, I, I left it uh, not because it was uh, you know it was a very inspiring interesting period because the people in there are so competent with their specialized uh, topic uh, many of them are engineers actually and uh, you got an opportunity to see so much uh, technology uh, emerging because we had a very strong focus on startups and, and emerging technologies and understand applications and how they uh, get into context in society in different industrial applications and, and, and consumer applications. Uh, and on top of that, I, I was never really, uh, my main focus was never really the, the invention in itself, but the perspective of where technology uh, uh, is bringing us, uh, kind of how technology influences society and our individual lives and, and businesses. So I always had this interest for interaction between technology and, and humanity. And, and after a while, uh, I, I couldn't get that stuff into small news pieces. I started uh, doing uh, talks and, uh, as a speaker. And, um, you know, I, I started a magazine, a uh, long read magazine called Next Magazine, where we tried to look into the future like five or ten years ago, um, well, five, six, seven years ago, eight years ago, I don't remember. So we already at that time talked about artificial intelligence and flying cars, by the way, and, <laughs> you know, all that stuff that's uh, on hot topics today uh, in long reads. But it, we, didn't, we didn't manage to take, make that um, magazine take off. So uh, eventually I decided that I, I tried to leave the, the magazine to try to work as a freelance in this way um, as a speaker and researcher on future and technology and its influence and, and, and how it changes the conditions for everything, how it changes our lives. And, and what, what really gives me passion about this is that I think that the change that we have ahead is so large and yet people don't really have an idea of how large it is. And I think in order to make this a good thing, because I don't think you can stop the technological progress, if you call it progress, but a pace of change, you, you can't stop it. That's another one of those main topics I have about exponential change and everything. But uh, our, our, we have to form it. We have to shape technology in a way that's good for humanity. And in order to do that, people need to understand it, need to talk about it much more than we do today, understand how big this change is. So that, that's really what, what encourages me to, to go ahead and work as a speaker, to try to wake up people's awareness of how technology actually shapes our lives and changes the conditions for everything, and that we have to adapt and shape technology in a good way for humanity. So 
briefly, you know, I, I started out not knowing really what I wanted to do, but I was good at science. And I ended up in this, you know, forward-looking interest for technology and humanity. So what are you going to do in the future? Oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm fairly, um, what do you say, uh, happy with this situation of trying to look ahead and try to communicate what I see and understand to other people and to start discussions and participate in discussions and, and you know, make that a topic that is live among people. Yeah. In, in one way or another, writing or speaking or researching or whatever. So it doesn't matter what. Cool. Or doing podcasts. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I'm very interested in uh, artificial intelligence. And for me, it's hard to not like start there when we talk about future technology. Sure. Uh, which jobs do you think are the most likely to be replaced by AI in the near future? Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, you got this uh, research study from Oxford University like uh, four or five years ago that said that 47, 48% of the jobs in U.S. could be re replaced by automation within like one or two decades. It was not very well defined, but uh, the time frame. But anyway, something like that. Uh, after that, there's been lots of discussions about automation, artificial intelligence and jobs. And uh, actually... Um, We know a lot about a lot of things, but this specific thing about how jobs will be destroyed or not is really uh, an unknown. Because there was a news piece in MIT Technology News, a Technology Review. It's a very good um, magazine on, uh, on the net, by the way. Um, that made a literature review of all these studies of how automation will destroy jobs. And it pointed in all directions. So, you know, people saying, no, we're going to have so many new jobs. And people saying, no, every job is going away. So um, we really don't know. But my take on that, and which is, by the way, fairly mainstream in, in the community talking about this, is that jobs are not going away. But, but tasks within jobs are being automated. <clears throat> and typically uh, what we see now, the very strong uptake into artificial intelligence is... Uh, taking over everything that can be considered a routine task, whether it's uh, physical or mental. Mm. So cognitive automation, which is talked about a lot now, which is the new thing. People uh, understand that things are being automated in, in factories, but not many people or people are starting to realize change now coming in with cognitive automation. So we have automation even in offices. And what is being automated are routine tasks where you can find patterns. So repetitive things that can be anything about, uh, you know, everything from accountability, where you can find a pattern. It can be a pattern about, uh, we see this uh, in all the talks now about Cambridge Analytica and, and you know, influencing people at, at elections. It's all about pattern recognition. So you, you take data and you can see patterns at a, at a level where humans can't see patterns, but these systems can. So they can understand who you are and how you can be influenced. That's kind of a repetitive um, task as well. It's automated because you can see patterns, you can use data, but it's very niche. So the best things that computers can do today about, you know, we see artificial intelligence today, the things that it does is driving cars, which is uh, analyzing data and, and doing repetitive tasks, um, analyzing pictures, um, like diagnosing cancer from pictures and things like that. Translating and understanding speech, uh, recognizing uh, not only pictures but also videos. So it's about analyzing patterns. So you can see in any job everything that can be repetitive and, and boring. Uh, and that's the main point. If people are afraid of automation, I usually ask them, could you tell me um, what you would gladly give away to a machine to do for you? And people 
suddenly smile, and, you know, and, well, this and this and this and that. So that's not a problem. The thing is that, of course, when the opportunity here is that uh, if we can get rid of all the that boring stuff uh, that can be automated, we can start doing things that we really want to do, which is more kind of human things, human aspects. And I usually say that there are four things that machines will have most difficulties at, at mustering. Mm-hmm. And those four things can be grouped in, in uh, creativity, which is the first one. Uh, second one is uh, convincing and motivating other people. Mm-hmm. Third thing is empathy, everything that got to do with human relationships and empathy, understanding people, etc. And the fourth thing is actually fine dexterity working with your fingers, which yeah. is very difficult mm-hmm. for robots today. You can do re- repetitive tasks in factories, but solving a problem, you know, doing in a knot with a rope or anything that you, you solve, um, you know, um, people working with the fingers doing stuff, it's very difficult for robots still. So you take that into a mix. You could find people like salesmen or uh, nurses or, or even people working with, with teeth, because then you're working with your hands, but you got to have empathy because you've got a patient. And maybe you got to be creative to find the good solution for mending that specific tooth. Um, so oh, anything, in any job, you can find a mixture between these four things that are difficult for machines. But all the stuff that is kind of routine tasks and repetitive, that's going to be automated mm. yeah. so if at you wanna, this level. So if you want to be safe in the future, we should become dentists <laughs> maybe <laughs> or dental technologists for, yeah. for example no what i say to my kids is you know follow your passion because you got to be passionate about something if you got to be good at it and try to focus on these human aspects since we're talking about ai yeah. are there really any dangers in ai and elon musk said that in this documentary that came out this year is do you trust this computer he said this <laughs> yeah. at least when there's an evil dictator that human's going to die But for an AI, there would be no death. It would live forever. And then you'd have an immortal dictator from which we can never escape. Right. Yeah, yeah, there are lots of these movies as well. Have you seen, uh, um, oh, what's that movie with uh, the Swedish actress? Uh, Uh, Ex Machina. Machina, Yeah, Yeah, that's very nice, I think. Um, So now we're talking about the longer perspective, right? And someone said about that movie, by the way, can you trust Elon Musk? (laughs) 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 Um, But but, uh, let's put it like this. This is the second part of what I see about technology. First of all, my, my main thing is that uh, what changes history is not, uh, or not popes and kings and epidemics and, and uh, kings and, revol- and revolutions and wars, but inventions. So inventions changes the conditions for everything around them, if there are good inventions, and um, um, force people to adapt. So if it's the wheel, or if it's the printing press, or if it's a knife, or even in the biological system, if it's an invention like sexual reproduction. So it's all the way from biological life to technology. Uh, and today we got, uh, you know, a steam engine uh, and the telephone, telegraph, and now we got the internet. And the internet is such a huge, huge force of change because it connects people all over the world in the way that we connected with each other 10,000 years ago when we moved into villages, starting with agriculture. That made it easier for people to exchange ideas and having new inventions. Now we're changing ideas all over the world in a microsecond. And, you know, you, you can't even imagine how it was 20 years ago when people had to read stuff in magazines to understand what kind of new inventions had been made. It's such a huge change. And of course, this... So, the main idea, which has been called by a futurist and now one of the research directors at Google called Ray Kurzweil, 
you might have heard about him. He, he's talking about this called the singularity. And Ray Kurzweil has formulated what he calls the, the law of accelerating returns, which is basically an, a, an observation that pace of change is increasing and, and trying to explain that. And his way of explaining it, which for me is completely intuitive, is that uh, the more inventions you have, uh, the higher the speed of new inventions. So, uh, you know, the more new technology you have that makes it easier to do stuff, the higher the speed of new inventions. And if you put that into mathematics, you actually get what's called a differential equation. And what turns out, it, it's an exponential function. So it's completely understandable that things are um, changing at exponential pace of uh, change. And uh, so what does it lead us? It, uh, at the moment, we have uh, a doubling of speed, general speed every 10 years, which means that if you do that, double that for, for 10 decades in a century, you will find that this century will have a change, number of change or, or amount of change, which is a thousand times larger than the last century. Yeah. A thousand times. Now, most of that will happen at the end of the century, but it changes faster and faster. And if you follow that pencil chain, today's artificial intelligence is uh, very much uh, a, a fruit of uh, technology called deep learning, which is uh, a very narrow kind of technology, which was actually invented in the 1980s, but th at that time we didn't have computer force enough to, to use it. Uh, it's a way of having a system with different layer of so-called neurons, which are kind of similar things to neurons in the brain, a model of the brain, if you if you want. Um, and and you can make those systems learn if you give them lots of lots of data, which is actually a difference from humans. We can learn from much less data, but these systems have lots of data. That's why Google and all those giants want want to own the data because they need lots of data. And, and by tuning them, you can make them learn almost anything. A, a pattern, as we talked about before, or recognizing things or learning to do a specific task exactly very, very well. It's a very narrow way of working. It's like a chess player. Chess players are actually not the most intelligent uh, humans on earth. They, uh, somebody told me that actually have a fairly normal or even low IQ, but they are specialized. Mm -hmm. So these systems are specialized. But if you continue to look at this pace of change with the exponential, then you can imagine that, well, we got to find new ways of improving artificial intelligence. Beyond deep learning, we got to understand different new pieces of the puzzle. And with the pace of change right now, Ray Kurzweil, which has been, he's been right with these predictions before, he estimates that in 2029, which is like 11 years from now, we're going to have what's called strong artificial intelligence, which is artificial intelligence at the level of humans. Mm. 11 years from now. And the thing is, if you have that, a machine that starts, what we absolutely don't have a clue about is human consciousness. So we don't know if, if you can create that. We don't even have a clue how you should start doing it. Some people have ideas, but we're very far from that. But maybe can even make a machine conscious. We don't know that. But at least some kind of intelligence at the level of humans, even when it comes to emotions and understanding, well, maybe not understanding, but interpreting emotions and reacting to them, then... If you have a system which is intelligent like that 11 years from now, it can start improving itself. And if it starts improving itself, you have a continuing uh, acceleration. And then the thesis is like that uh, in around 2045, you, you're going to have what's called a superintelligence, which is so much more intelligent than humans. that It might be a machine uh, that is uh, for $1,000, which is as intelligent as all the humans together on Earth. 
if you got a very strong thing, a robot, you can you can stop it with violence, but you can't stop in intelligence. It's like uh, trying uh, a, a rabbit trying to escape from you. You're smarter. You will win because yeah. you're going to find a way to trap it or a weapon or something. So if we've got a super intelligence, and this is the point of Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking and, and Bill Gates and everyone, if you've got a super intelligence, it's just, you, you, you just have to, you know, uh, it's stronger than you. So you can't beat it. And you can't stop it. And you people say, well, you got to close it in, in inside a room uh, and don't let it out, not, not connecting it to the internet, where it's going to be smarter than you. So you're going to find a way to get out. Yeah. Uh, that's all the way the, the movie um, uh, Ex Machina is all about that. So she's smarter. She yeah. found a way to fool the, the guys around her and, and she got out. Yeah. So we, it's impossible to stop. So this is the idea about super intelligence. And in that case, of course, uh, we just have to hope that it's good to us because we won't be able to stop it. We don't know if you're going to get there. Some people say that intelligence can't be measured on one scale. Intelligence is uh, it's different dimensions. You can argue that some animals are more intelligent than us in certain aspects. So a super intelligence is a, 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 a hollow kind of um, concept. But we don't know. But actually, if you ask me, yes, I think that I can find no argument against exponential uh, change. Things are accelerating, and it seems very natural, and they're going to continue acceleration. And in that in that sense, yes, today's automation is is manageable, and we can understand how we should deal with it, would work, and everything. But two or three decades from now, it's really the unknown. We don't know what's going to happen. It might be dangerous. It, we don't know. <laughs> yeah, you talked a bit about movies, and uh, it's really common to to portray like future technology and. The, I think especially the downsides of it in movies. Yep. So in your opinion, is there like any setting in a movie that is like likely to happen? Well, I, I think the X Machina is not bad. Mm. Uh, another movie or well, TV series that I really liked was the Swedish very low-key uh, one called Ekta Menichur, Real Humans. Mm. I don't know if you heard about it. I've heard about it. Haven't yeah, seen it. Um, it's it's uh, um, a TV series. I only saw the first. Um, uh, um, what do you call it? Season. Uh, it's been translated and sold to many countries, but it was born in Sweden. Um, it, it, it aesthetically, it's, the scenery is very much today's uh, surroundings. It doesn't not very futuristic, uh, as in most science fiction movies. But you got these robots called uh, U-bots uh, helping you at home, right? And uh, in, in, and they're sold by private a private company develop on these robots, which are very efficient at all, but they're very obedient and, and fairly silly, kind of. But, you know, good U-bots. And then uh, uh, the research department, of course, the guy uh, at the center of this, he manages to find a new key to their intelligence, which makes them a little bit more intelligent, but also unpredictable. Mm. So, uh, And a small group of these U-bots got this super, uh, higher level of intelligence and they, they break free. So the plot in, in, in the series, which I find is interesting, is uh, the re- humans' reactions to this technology is very similar to racism. So we're afraid of them because they're taking our jobs, they're kind of invading our country. So there, there, there's, there are groups forming trying to blow them up in the air explosions and kill them and everything. And, and meanwhile, you got this small group of more intelligent U-bots uh, uh, trying to defend them, their position, and they're angry and they're, they're scared. So they want to, you know, stop people and kill people as well. So you see this polarization starting. 
it's not bad. It's yeah. very local, very easily done. Uh, I, I think it's it, it's good in that because it, it it takes out a very probable scenario of, of people being afraid of automation and technology and the, some kind of confrontation. But apart from that, I would say, of course, obviously, the disastrous development in all science fiction movies is is kind of that's a natural uh, plot in a movie to make a story. You got a, a threatening disaster, and you got some hero you know, stopping that disaster mm. and then we can all celebrate because we we did it. Kind of. <laughs> the more credible, um, I would say, if technology really accelerates in this way and, and we get this kind of synthetic intelligence, our only way to cope with that will be to merge with technology in one way or another. And how it, that will be done is fairly difficult to understand. If it's going to be physical with computers in our brain or some kind of interaction which is sufficient but but i think that's that's in the long perspective that's the way i think humanity has to go so uh, as we spoke a bit about before technology is rapid it's the pace is just growing and growing and how do we like control this in a way how do we even create laws regarding it Yeah, that's a very good question, and that like, turns us back a little bit to the 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 situation we have right now, and which is uh, difficult as it is, enough difficult to deal with. I don't think we have to bother about those great, scary problems three decades from now. We have to deal with what we have right now, yeah. and we talked about Cambridge Analytica and Facebook and everything. So. Uh, what's I'm I'm not so. Uh, by the way, Cambridge Analytica was first written about in the Guardian. I think was two years ago now and it took two years to reach this level where everyone talks about it uh, but nothing much new has come out of that since then actually we all knew about this two years ago and and um, so it's a typical situation technology changes the conditions for everything in this case it's about the main aspect of the internet uh, changing what has been for Thousands of years, everything we have been doing has been hierarchical. Suddenly comes internet and connects people peer-to-peer all over the world. And that's a very subtle change, very slow change, because it changes the way we do lots of things. Organizations and companies, which used to be closed silos, hierarchical uh, structures, now people are communicating outside and inside the company, floating in and out, and knowledge is floating in and out. And You know, that's one part of it. And, And news is another one. News was used to be controlled by news organizations with editors and everything. Now, people communicate news peer-to-peer through digital platforms like Facebook. And we couldn't uh, understand uh, the consequences before. We just discovered them while we're using it. And this is what we've discovered now, how it can be used and misused. And, of course, we have to react. And the thing is, as you say, uh, it, it's going faster and faster, and, and legislation tend normally has a fairly slow pace because it should have, because you should think thoroughly about it uh, to have good laws that can't be misused or that should be uh, adequate. So I'm actually in in uh, participating in a research project right now at the Scotland, Stockholm School of Economics, a three-year project where we're studying the Internet's influence of society and innovation in Sweden. And the last phase that we're doing now, we're looking at the welfare state and I'm doing research on, on the future of the national state, which is hugely interesting. Because uh, it, it's it's you know we take it for granted. It's been here for like 500 years, 
which is not much if you think about it, but we take it for granted. And now it's being challenged because it doesn't. It, it's born in a situation where communication wasn't that easy and that peer-to-peer all over the world. It was local communication and very slow. Uh, and suddenly people have expectations of the state that the state doesn't deliver. So the national state and, and the welfare state has to evolve and it has to do that quickly and, and uh, legislation has to evolve. And I would, see that, I would say that the main problem is that uh, policymakers, politicians are not aware enough. They should... Uh, we actually wrote an opinion piece in Dagens Nyheter two years ago with a professor at, at Stockholm School of Economics and another professor at uh, Royal Institute of Technology about... Uh, we su- suggested, and, and unfortunately we didn't follow up on that, we suggested that every uh, elected person uh, uh, in, in, in the country should get a one-day uh, education, maybe at Hyper Island, why not? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, about the frontier of, of new technologies, to get an understanding, because if they, if they don't have a basic understanding of technologies and, and the potential uh, effects of uh, technology, they can't uh, do the right mind work to start creating laws and suggestions for new laws. Um, but it is an issue, yeah. But I think we're, we're in that. We're, we're learning. And at, I talked with... Um, the innovation officers, uh, officer at the Organization for Swedish Citizens and Regions yesterday, Sveriges Kommun och Landsting. You know, some people in there are very aware of the problem and they're working on it, but it, it's difficult. We are people, so it takes time. Um, but I think a lot of people are starting to feel the, the sense of urgency about this. So it's, it's, it's hard work. And Sweden is fairly good at it, I think, uh, because we we we, all, we already have a good discussion about these uh, effects in in society. Uh, but we're going to work harder. Interesting. You know, in the Mark Zuckerberg uh, when he was in front of those senators, Congress. I don't know. I don't know the U.S. politics that well. Mm. But <laughs> when they ask questions like, um, "So do the machines talk to each other without a human being touching it?" Yeah, and it was really. <laughs> horrifying to see that they they didn't know what they were talking about. Yeah, but you know, uh, there was a comment on that which I really liked, yeah. uh, which said that the tech uh, press, uh, the tech websites, were uh, kind of laughing at the uh, politicians in, in, in that situation because they didn't understand about anything about it. But, uh, you know, um, so people didn't either. No. <laughs> I mean, in, in general. I mean, um, that would be the reaction by ordinary people in the world. That's that's another part of it. Policymakers have a difficulty talking about this un, uh, until there is a, a very broad discussion among people about it. Because if you as a policymaker, politicians start to talk about jobs being destructed, there are going to be so much disoccupation and people without work, without people understanding it, they won't vote for you. Of course not. Right. You're a crazy man. Out with you. So we have to start in both ways. We have to create a greater awareness about it. And because of that, this discussion is fairly good. That Cambridge Analytica came to a very broad discussion in society, people starting talking about it. Because then when people talk about it, policymakers can talk about it and people can learn. And we can start having this process of making better laws. Another aspect of this, which often comes up today, is is the, the situation where we see that lots of economic resources are concentrated, very few people in the world, which is accelerated by digital technology and digital platforms. The essential understanding of this is that technology has got no borders any longer. It's all over the world. And so is it about finance and capital and money. But national states are still local. So, and regulations. So what we need to have to make this world better probably is a global regulation of money. 
of finance, because otherwise we won't be able to distribute resources evenly in this world when, when technology and finance is so global and, and laws are not. It's going to be very difficult, of course, because it's difficult already to uh, make agreements inside the European Union and make it globally. It's going to be really difficult, but we really have to. Yeah. So talking about specific industries, rather, if let's say you had a million dollars and you had to invest these million dollars, which industry or field would you invest in? <laughs> I was always bad at investing. I'm an engineer, I'm an economist. <laughs> so yeah. I see what I, I see what technology will be. Uh, I think will be successful, but I always make the wrong investment. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, and that's funny. I always I was always mad at financial newspapers because they talk about companies without even mentioning what they're doing. Yeah. How, can you, how can you talk about a company and talking about its success or, or non-success or how you think it will? Just analyzing the money going in and out, not understanding what they're doing. That's my point of view as an engineer. You got to understand what they're doing. But in some way, they manage anyway to make money. I don't know how they do. Anyway, invest. I, I think that one of the most interesting industries right now is the transportation and car industry because it's a very good example of digitalization, how much digital change can actually hit an industry and change it, fundamentally disrupt it. And the thing that we're seeing right now is uh, the same thing as we saw. First of all, I mean, autonomous cars are almost here. And it's funny, but 10 years ago, people didn't even know they existed. They almost didn't exist. They existed in experiments in the uh, desert in the U.S. financed by those, that American Research Military Research Institute, DARPA. We made it internet, by the way. So in 10 years, we have reached so far. And the thing is not if they're coming out. The thing is if pe- people will be allowed to drive cars. I don't think so. You know that car accidents are killing 1.2 million people a year. That's about 3,000 a day and two persons a minute. And we just don't think about it. Mm-hmm. And those are the people killed. We don't talk about those injured. So the, 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 the cars are coming here. And I don't think that people will be allowed to drive cars because they're just too dangerous. Uh, cars, you know, machines, they, they, they don't get upset and irritated and they don't, don't discuss and, and, and certainly never get drunk. <laughs> <laughs> just so much safer once we get it working right. Um, but the thing is here, what's happening here is that the same thing that happened in the mobile phone industry, that you had those mobile phones being only hardware. And then suddenly Apple came around and made the smartphone usable because the smartphone existed before. Nokia and Ericsson had made smartphones, yeah. but they were really hard to use. So Apple figured out how to do that in an easy way with a very good touchscreen that you can actually handle with one finger. Did you know that Nokia told me once that we don't believe in touchscreens because we found out that people want to be able to use the telephone with one hand. (laughs) And that's a correct conclusion. Only that they made such lousy touchscreens that you needed two hands to manage them with the the stylus, Mm. you know. But now uh, modern touchscreens, you can have the the telephone in one hand and you can use the thumb to to actually handle it. So uh, what happened in the mobile phone industry that went from hardware to importance of hardware to importance of software. Software is everything. I mean, the apps that you have, the, uh, all the things they can do with the software in the smartphone is the smartphone. The hardware is, you know, well, you got a good camera and it's resistant to water, but that's not the main thing. It used to be the main thing. You wanted a very small and, and nice telephone hardware. Yeah. So what we're seeing now in car industry, for a hundred years, we have been focusing on cars that are, have nice hardware and are going fast, right? So once they got autonomous... That all disappears. You, you won't care because you won't own your car. You will don't own 
transportation, you will access transportation as you don't own music any longer. You access music. Mm-hmm. You don't own IT infrastructure. You access infrastructure in the in the cloud. So you will access transportation. And what becomes important then are all the services that you get before and during and after the transportation, which is all software services. That's what you're going to care about. You don't care. So we're going to have probably the 10 top car manufacturers of yesterday or today, they might just be contractors and, and you know, suppliers to the main transportation operators 10 years from now. So Audi and Mercedes and BMW and all of them, you don't know if they will actually be big any longer. And that's such a huge shift. Somebody talked about the passenger economy which is, you know, not buying cars, but buying all these services. Mm. And so, uh, where should I invest? Oh, that's a good question. So, <laughs> which will be the company that will dominate this industry? Well, of course, Google is a good guess. Yeah. They, they just decided to buy ten or 20,000 Jaguars. Did you hear that? No. No, no they're going to buy these Jaguar Jeeps. Two years from now, they think that they're going to operate uh, one million person miles transportation a day with autonomous cars two years from now. So it's already here. And they're going to have large amounts of data from all that transportation. And, you know, there's so much that can come out of that. And Google's on top, ahead of the pack. No. So, but I don't know if I would like to invest in Google. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's... But I would like... One very interesting Swedish startup in this field is Einride, which is a small company making autonomous trucks. Ooh. Have you seen them? No, you should I look them not. up. I uh, will. I yeah, will. check out. It's really nice even to look at the picture because the, those are trucks, electrical trucks, without the drive cabin. They <laughs> just, you know, the track on four wheels and it's autonomous. And if it comes into a difficulty and it can't go ahead, they will just telecommand it through the difficulty and it goes ahead. And it's going to be shuttling between Jothenburg and Helsingborg. They got an agreement already with the, uh, the company Lidl for um, food transportation. Two years from now, a hundred of them, back and forth. So when you see them passing you in the highway there on the West Coast, there, see the picture. It's really... <laughs> and they are, we need to link to this. Yeah, they yeah. are really... Uh, the, the, the guy who, who's the CEO and founder, Robert Falk, he's a really good guy, a smart guy. And he's been working in Silicon Valley and at, at Scania or Volvo. I think it was Volvo. So uh, he's got experience with both uh, the IT industry and the, and the truck industry. They are really interesting. They, I think they're really good uh, uh, way ahead in, in, in this field in the world. That's so cool. Yeah. You talked a bit about smartphones before. Yeah. So when smartphones like really broke through, there was this big debate about people being social. Yep. Some people claim that we become more social because it's easier to connect with friends and family through them. But some people claim we become less social because all we do is look at a screen. Mm. So to put that in regards to future technology, will people become more or less social? Right. That's a good question. Uh, let me start from a perspective of this, which is about kids and youth. And I have a, an opinion there, which is fairly strong. And I sometimes clash with other digital enthusiasts. And my main idea here is that even, even though kids can use smartphones from three years old easily because they learn quickly. My main point here is if you think about it, technology, computers and stuff like that, 20, 30 years ago, was fairly difficult to handle. You had to be really passionate about unlearned programming. Today, it's so easy, and it's becoming easier and easier. When we're going to talk with our devices, it's going to be even easier, even for elderly people, to handle technology. So the difficulty in life is not technology. When you grow up, the difficult thing is to become a person. 
And to become a person when you're a kid and, and when you're young, you need to meet other persons in real life. So that's my argument for actually limiting the use of digital technology for kids specifically and, and young persons. Not because I'm, I'm an enemy to technology, but because I think that to develop us as humans, and we are going to need to be very solid and harmonic humans as adults to be able to cope with the extreme pace of change that we're going to have ahead. So we need solid humans. And to become a solid, peaceful human, you got to grow as a person. And doing that, you have to interact with other persons in real life. Apart from that, I think that digital technology is a great tool for social communication. If you have that basic fundamental of being a human person, that you've got the feeling for interacting with other people, if you have that, I can, you can put the digital on top. Then I don't think it's a problem. It's a problem, on the other hand, if you start growing up as a kid with too much focus on the digital channel, and then you don't develop your human character as a person. Because then you're going to be a less solid person, I think, and you're going to suffer more. That's kind of the main perspective. Then in the future, what scares me a little bit is the, I think that what we see today with virtual reality is just the start of something that can be really big. It's really not mature. It's quite fairly disturbing to have those masks on, the VR masks still, even though they're much better than just a few years ago. But they're going to get better, like all technology. And one day, I think they're going to be so easy to use and so interesting that people will actually spend more time in virtual reality than in real life. That scares me a little bit. Mm. But because the conclusion is that there will be so much to discover and so much to do in the virtual reality, limitless, basically. It's not difficult to understand that people will want to be there. Mm. But it scares me a little bit seeing people sitting there, you know, paralyzed, looking into a mask. Or it, it, It's... I'm, I got a feeling for it that it's not really nice. <laughs> <laughs> Unsettling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you were talking about, in the beginning, and I said we should get back to it, was uh, cold fusion. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I mean, I said we'd get back to it, and we're getting back to it. Okay. Let me hear it. What, what's going oh, on with this? Oh, <laughs> uh, that's so a different topic. So if you want the short story, you can go to my website, animpossiblyinvention.com where you're going to find my book, which is called An Impossible Invention, that I wrote um, four years ago. And I followed this story from 2011. I had heard about a cold fusion as a technology journalist always since the 90s. And the basic thing, so I've got a master science in physical engineering. I'm not very fond of all those fluffy dreams about free energy and stuff like that. This is hard science, right? And it's about, so there are two ways of gaining energy from reactions. One is chemical reactions, and the other are nuclear reactions. And then you could get energy from the sun, of course, but the sun is powered by nuclear reactions. So it's all this energy always comes from a reaction, right? Chemical reactions are electrons doing stuff, and nuclear reactions are nucleons doing stuff. And electrons are so tiny, they are like if they are like flies flying around the nucleus. The nucleus is made of those steel balls, 2,000 times more heavy than the electron. So that's the reason for nuclear reactions being much more powerful than chemical reactions. So if you have one ton of fuel, chemical fuel, like oil or gas or something, that corresponds to one gram of nuclear fuel. So nuclear reactions are so much more compact, and they're much better in that way. And they don't release, uh, for example, CO2. So, of course, nuclear is better. The bad thing about nuclear today is radiation and uh, harmful waste. And we don't want that because it's very harmful and very, you know, disturbing problem, even though we can handle it, according to me. 
But future, we don't want it. Now we're talking about hot fusion, though, the two different nuclear reactions. One is that you're dividing nuclears. That's the way you think we have in our normal nuclear plants. It's called fission. Then you've got fusion. That's what's going on in the sun. And there you're putting nuclei together. So you can gain energy by some uh, physical, or it's too long to explain, but you can gain energy from those both reactions. But they do, both produce lots of radiation. And the fusion that people say, we're going to have hot fusion uh, using the hydrogen in the seawater 10, 20 years from now, uh, that's a good idea. The only thing is, you know, to, to copy the thing that you're doing in the sun, you've got to have 100 million degrees. And even if you manage to do it, you've got this huge uh, reactor being constructed in France called ITER, I-T-E-R, which is an experimental reactor which will be working 10 years from now, and we will maybe work for five minutes at a time, maybe producing more energy that it consumes. And still you're going to have those 100 million degrees and lots of, lots of, lots of radiation that you've got to handle. You don't even know how, how that influences concrete around, around the reactor. So it's a difficulty. But then these guys come out in 1989 and they say, we, got found, we found cold fusion. We found a way to do this reaction in a jar on a table at temperatures of a few hundred degrees and no radiation. And no nuclear, and no radiation, uh, no uh, radioactive waste and no radioactive fuel. Well, that's very good. Yeah, no, that's a holy grail. You, you solve the problem of energy of the world. Only that, a few months later, the scientific community didn't manage to repeat this experiment. And they decided, well, they, these guys were probably dreaming, so it was not true. No. This is what they call pathological science. You find something that you want to find, but it's not really there. So after Time magazine and everything had it on the first page and the scientific community was talking about it for a few months, they decided this is all fake. It's not true. But it turned out to be true because a few hundred researchers continued to research and doing the research. and It's untouchable today. It's so stigmatized. You can't dedicate a career to it without all immediately being you know, put out of the scientific community and people telling you that you're lunatic. That's a very sad thing because this experiment that they did, these guys, Fleischmann and Mahant, they were called in 1989, it has been repeated in experiments being published in peer-reviewed journals like a hundred times, but not very stable. It's very difficult to repeat. Now you know what you shouldn't do to be successful, but you still know, don't know exactly how you should do to make it every time. It's very elusive, but it's proven that the phenomenon is there. And now it comes around this strange Italian inventor in 2011 and makes a demonstration. He says, now I'm starting to control it. And I'm not producing, you know, a few watts, which could light a small lamp up, but a thousand watts, which is the power from an electrical strobe. And it stores every time I'm using it. And it doesn't produce, produce any, uh, any radiation and no radioactive fuel and no radioactive waste. But I won't tell you how I do, because I'm an entrepreneur. <laughs> and he was involved in the 80s in, in biofuel, which is today a normal technology. At that time, it was very revolutionary, um, challenging the oil industry and everything. And he went into prison, not for being a fraudster, but for enemies trying to catch with him and, and because he was challenging too much interest. So, and then people, oh, he's been to prison. He's a fraudster. And I've been following this story. The guy has been going on, going on. And it's it's under the radar all the time because no one dares to talk about it. And now, uh, at a certain point, he has evolved this reactor so much that he, he says that at the end of the year, I'm going to present a commercial product producing energy uh, for industrial use. You know, a few, a, gram of fuel, a few grams of fuel will last for six months. You could basically load a car with energy for its lifetime. There is no radiation, no radioactive fuel, no radioactive waste. We solve the energy problem. <laughs> and no one talks about it because it's too controversial. And I'm still there. And, uh, there is no theory yet accepted explaining the phenomenon. But there are observations for it working. 
And like Thomas Edison, who invented the lamp up, he, he, this entrepreneur called Andrea Rossi, he won't tell you exactly how he does because he says, he's, I've, I've been getting to know him because I speak Italian, my wife is Italian. So we got to know each other. And I understand he's, he's an old school guy. First of all, he says, I will never be able to convince anyone with an experiment because my enemies will always find flaws. So it's no use for me doing a perfect experiment. I will make a product. That's the only way of convincing people. And I don't believe in open source. Uh, a young person today would make a startup giving away this idea to, to the world and telling people how to do it. No, I don't believe in that because people kill it off. I need to make it myself uh, with investments. Yeah. So he's doing it the old way, and he, and he says at this time, and he, I never heard him so convinced before, at the end of the year, I'm going to present a product, and he's going to produce one kilowatt of heat or something like that, and using almost no uh, input energy. So if this is true, and until now, I haven't found any convincing evidence for fraud or mistakes, if this is true, it's going to change the world. <laughs> because the problem with solar and wind is that you need storage. Yeah. And if you don't have storage, you need to compensate with fossil fuels when you don't have uh, production. And storage, even though Elon Musk is working hard with producing this factory, it's difficult. And mass, mass deployment of batteries, I think that's an environmental problem with all those chemicals inside. So that's one part of it. And we got oil and fossil that we have to get rid of. And nuclear is a problem. And then you got the dream of hot fusion, but you still got to have that huge power plant. The thing, if this works, is that not only we're going to have very cheap, accessible energy 24-7, um, it's distributed. Hmm. So anywhere in the world, you could produce energy to get clean water or energy or whatever. Uh, even in a small village in Africa, it's a very simple technology, uh, essentially. Uh, once you get it working. And that means that one of the last important structures of society, of a nation, or which is the electric grid that you're dependent on, because if the electric grid fails, a nation will, you know, just fall down in, in 24 hours. Yeah. If we can take away that vulnerability, what do you say? <laughs> vulnerability. Vulnerability. You, you can have a much more resilient society and much more distributed society. And information always got, already got distributed from being controlled by a few to accessible to everyone. If that happens to energy too, the combination will be a perfect storm. So, and the funny thing is people are not aware at all about this. People are talking a lot about artificial intelligence and digitalization, starting to talk about that. But this is a completely non-touched topic. And if it's true, it's going to change the world from there to there in a fairly short time frame. That's super interesting. So, so that's something we might see at the end of the year then. Yeah, but maybe. I, I don't promise you. It might still, I always keep the door open. Maybe his, this guy is mistaken. Maybe it's a fraud. I can't promise, of course. But my, my assessment of this is that this is sufficiently interesting to follow, at least. So, anipessableinvention.com. Yeah, we'll put a link to that in our description. <laughs> Thank you. Interested listeners. So, we're out of time. Oh, yeah. Yes. So, let's uh, do a checkout. And today's checkout question is that what already existing invention describes your current mood? And we're kind of catching you off guard here, so maybe we can we can start it off. Jonathan, what do you think? Current mood would be radiators, which I'm as they say in Swedish, element, so it's to keep me warm, and I'm feeling quite warm right now. Uh, I would say that is something that I'm thankful for as well. Mm. I would say that I feel like an airplane, Ooh. because I'm so happy that I could just fly. Oh, that was a difficult question, and trying to you know grasp for something. I like bikes; um, it's kind of freedom feeding. Uh, I think uh, it's also an image of, of 
local power that you're actually producing your own energy and you're doing something locally, uh, which I think is uh, important for the future. We're going to have a society to be resilient towards the very high pace of change. It's going to be very local and very flexible. Future society, networked and, and local and very uh, flexible. Maybe bike is a good picture there. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. Perfect. <laughs> and so thank you much for being here with us today. It's been really interesting and Again, thank you, Beppo Studios, for letting us record here. You guys are the best. And guys, remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And soon, you can even listen to our episodes on Storytel. Yeah. So if you follow us, called HyperTalks at both Instagram and Facebook. And there you can find news about Storytel. You can. Exciting. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.